Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Francisco L. Borges and the Melville Charitable Trust. Donald, come in here. We have to practice. Aw, Kellyanne, I hate to practice. What do you say when they ask if you'll accept the result of the election? You mean if I lose? Why would I accept that? Why did I buy 10,000 pitchforks if I'm going to accept defeat? (laughs) Don't engine May the pitchforks pay. Sorry. I told you what to say. You say, I may have to pursue remedies available to me under the law, just as Al Gore did in 2000, but if and when those are exhausted, I will concede. Now you say that. I don't want to. Say it. First, tell me about the rabbits. Okay, we're going to get rabbits. Don't say it like a nasty woman. Say it nice. We're going to win the election and move into the White House. And we're going to have rabbits there. And you'll get to take care of them. You left something out. What? We're going to have political prisoners, too. What did I say? We only talk about... That thing when we're alone. Just the two of us. And at the moment, there's a whole radio thing that's about to happen. And now his password is bad ombre puppet, Colin McEnroe. Well, I changed it. I changed it. I don't want to wind up like John Podesta uh, with a you know really easy-to-hack password, which apparently was uh, – there's like this rumor on the internet that Podesta's uh, password was runner4567. That was his password. And he's upset that WikiLeaks hacked him. All right. Uh, so we're here to talk about last night's debate. Uh, it was, um, well, as all of these debates have been, memorable, emotionally exhausting. Uh, joining us in studio, Bilal Siku, uh, Associate Professor of Political Science at the University of Hartford. Uh, joining us from KRLA Studios in Los Angeles, uh, Alicia Krauss, uh, former senior producer for The Sean Hannity Show, currently the morning co-host at KRLA, as I mentioned before, AM 870, The Answer in Los Angeles. She was Uh, with us for our show about conservative talk radio. We loved her so much. We wanted her to come back. We're going to talk about this debate last night and sort of what happens next. A little bit later on the show, Alexandra Petri, very funny writer for The Washington Post, will also join us. Um, Alicia, I am going to start with you. Uh, Mm -hmm. Last night, if I were sort of a mainstream and basically loyal Republican uh, watching the first 30 or 40 minutes of that debate uh, and Chris Wallace, you know, maybe more than any moderator has done so far, managing to keep order in the classroom, at least for a while, uh, I'm sure I would have been thinking, well, A, this looks like a real debate, not some kind of uh, crazy farm that I've seen in the past, Uh, and B, um, you know, the Republican candidate's doing pretty well in a way that I recognize. He's talking about the Second Amendment. He's talking about abortions. He's talking about policies that I understand and recognize. I mean, was that your sense, too, that that this was closer to something resembling a conventional Republican candidate, at least up to a certain point in the evening, uh, than than Donald Trump has typically come? Yeah, I think that I was kind of surprised by his answer on abortion because he's been all over the map on that in the past. He's he's been the one that just said that Planned Parenthood does good things, and and Hillary Clinton could have asked him and pivoted to him and asked him about that. She did briefly mention the statements that he's made that 
myself being a pro-life person and every other pro-life person I've ever met vehemently disagreed with about punishing women who get abortions. And most of the most active pro-life advocates I've ever met are actually women who had abortions and then shifted their opinion on the issue. But uh, in his answer on the Second Amendment stuff, I don't even know why he didn't target her the way the way he could have, no pun intended, with that target phrase there, actually. And But I was pleasantly surprised at his answer on the Supreme Court, and I was horrified at hers because I don't know if she remembered learning about the three different branches of government, but it isn't SCOTUS's job to legislate, and it isn't their job to go after big, powerful people. I mean, being an evangelical Christian, in the biblical sense, justice is supposed to be served equally, not just to the rich guy. And and I think that that is a beautiful form of justice that we've seen kind of lost in this country. Wasn't that mostly in the context of Citizens United, though? Uh, I, I think if you go back and I've I've watched that clip a couple of times, I mm. guess you could argue that it was in the case of Citizens United, which is something that she's continually said that she, that she wants to overturn. Absolutely. But I mean, how about the fact that at during her DNC speech, she said that she would create like a, I mean, she went so far as to say she'd be open to a constitutional amendment to ban any type action like Citizens United in the future. Um, so it, it uh, was kind of going along in a way that somebody familiar with Republican and Democratic ideology might uh, mention. Uh, and then Bilal, we came to this point that we knew, everybody knew, including Donald Trump knew, was coming. Uh, this was the moment when he was going to be asked, as he was asked right at the end of the last debate, uh, what he would do about the results of the election, particularly if they did not go in his favor. Uh, let's hear that clip. Your running mate, Governor Pence, pledged on Sunday that he and you, his words, will absolutely accept the result of this election today, your daughter Ivanka said the same thing. I want to ask you here on the stage tonight, do you make the same commitment that you will absolutely, sir, that you will absolutely accept the result of this election? I will look at it at the time. I'm not looking at anything now. I'll look at it at the time. What I've seen, what I've seen is so bad. First of all, the media is so dishonest and so corrupt and the pylon is so amazing the New York Times actually wrote an article about it that they don't even care. It's so dishonest, and they've poisoned the minds of the voters. But unfortunately for them, I think the voters are seeing through it. Are you saying you're not prepared now to commit to that principle? What I'm saying is that I will tell you at the time. I'll keep you in suspense. All right. So this would have been a relatively easy question for him to answer, even if he didn't want to commit uh, all the way. Uh, were you surprised by what he did there? Or? Actually, I was surprised, but then I wasn't surprised. On the one hand, you know, there are moments where this campaign feels like we're in 1876 rather than 2016. I'm not surprised by it in the sense that when you think about the last seven plus years of, of, of uh, Barack Obama's uh, presidency, the Republicans have consistently said no, 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 which means as a governance strategy, it really has been about not accepting the legitimacy of this president. There are many things that have happened over the years with regard to questions about his um, alleged you know, birth abroad to questions about him being a socialist and other things that discredit him. And so to hear Donald Trump suggest that, you know, I'm not going to accept the legitimacy of this thing until I I'm willing to accept it, you know, really to me is fairly consistent with what has been a governance strategy by Republicans for nearly a decade. Um, and so in that sense, it really wasn't surprising. Alicia, that can't have been the plan. I mean, all joking aside. <laughs> Does uh, Donald Trump ever have a plan, though? I mean, this is the problem, and I would and I would respectfully disagree with the professor there. I mean, I'm old enough to remember, and I'm only 30, but I've been a political geek my entire life, that the Republican Party said what Al Gore did when he challenged 
you know, the recount in Florida back in 2000 that it was wrong. And I'm also old enough to remember Democrats for a very long time calling George W. Bush the illegitimate president. And it is just laughable to me that you have Trump surrogates out there like Kellyanne Conway, like Rudy Giuliani and like Corey Lewandowski, who's a paid surrogate over at CNN as well, saying, oh, well, look, at, look to Gore. Look to how recently this has happened. And it's just mind boggling to me. Well, so in, in other words, one thing that he could have done, Alicia, is to say, I mean, I, I wrote it as a joke in the intro, but he could have said something like, I, I might have to, as Al Gore did, pursue some legal remedies, you know, and, mm-hmm. and you know, and if there are legal remedies, if there are recounts triggered in certain places, uh, it, it, perhaps if there's even a, a court appeal process, as was the case uh, in, in, Gore's, in Gore's election, you know, I, I might go that route. When all those things are exhausted, when that's done, I'm done. I respect this process. I mean, if you'd said that, we, we wouldn't be talking about anything today, right? Exactly. Especially because no one on the national level and a lot of state levels, like you had the Republican Secretary of State in Ohio, for example, come out and say, Donald, I'm voting for you and this ain't going to happen here in our state. You've had a lot of other Republican governors and senators like Marco Rubio the other day saying there's no statistical evidence to show that this is widespread and that the national election would be rigged. Now, as we've seen with the Project Veritas videos and as we saw, I think you could argue in the norm versus Al Franken election, as we saw in Florida. You know, there's sometimes things where recounts have to take effect and where the state and local governments have to look into what happened there. But this is not a systemic problem. And frankly, it reminds me of commie propaganda from the 80s when they tried to make Ronald Reagan and, and the American administration and our policy of government look bad. And we're telling their people with propaganda about nothing that you see in America political system is true. It's all lies. It's all rigged. But but in many ways, I mean, this, in, you know, sort of this back and forth about, you know, the Al Gore moment really is an example of the problem with what's going on right now. There are really separate sets of facts that people operate on, right? You know, one version is Al Gore fought this thing and never accepted. Another version is that, you know, when Florida happened and the dispute came about the Florida, he sort of retracted the statement about accepting the outcome of the election. But people are operating from do, two different sets of facts. It's the same way with the you know, alleged voter fraud. On the one hand, Republicans, you know, going back more than a decade now, when you think about what happened, um, you know, particularly in those states, Republicans were able to take control of both the legislature as well as the governorship. They went about the task of really trying to gut the Voting Rights Act, to change voting laws under the guise of the argument that fraud is rampant. And now we have a candidate who comes out and says fraud is rampant. And so for me, this disconnect between what the party has really been arguing for a number of years, perhaps even decades, and now a, a candidate who in many ways is a kind of Frankenstein monster who's come out and now sort of articulates these arguments that the base of the party has been arguing for years, and they've sort of built up this sense among their constituents that fraud is rampant. I remember once having a conversation with a guy who argued with me about how fraud, election fraud is out there. He says to me, you know, I have no proof that it's out there, but I believe it's out there. And so when you have in the absence of proof, you believe it's still a, a problem and a fact. I mean, that is the nature of what's been going on for more than a decade or so. Alicia, I would argue, yeah. though, I would argue, right. though, Professor, that that is not, in, I mean, entirely true that this is the majority of the Republican Party base that is lobbed on to the atrocity that is Donald Trump. I have often lamented for the last 18 months that Donald Trump is the unfortunate caricature of what many in the media and many on the left have said Republican men are for a very long time and we're not. And I mean, to say that he is representing the majority of the base is, is definitely untrue when you've seen states like Arizona, Nevada in Texas that should be hardcore red, even the Carolinas, which I think he's going to lose to Hillary Clinton, are now only leaning red 
or going blue. And so I think that you're seeing a really strong level of dissatisfaction from Republican voters, from Democrat voters, and from, you know, the general election independent magic voters that both candidates right. really need at this point. You know, Alicia, one of the things that uh, one of the uh, one group of people who are in a very difficult position right now are kind of, you know, we, the so-called grown-ups maybe of the Republican Party that, you know, right now boils down to probably Ryan's Priebus, uh, Paul Ryan, Mitch McConnell. Um, this is they're in a tough situation, right? Republicans are already getting mad at Paul Ryan for not going mm-hmm. down the line with Trump. This is a day when and I don't think there's been an announcement so far. You'd kind of hope that maybe uh, Priebus and Ryan uh, and McConnell, maybe all together joining hands or something, would come out and say, you know, absent some kind of actual legal problem. We really do want everybody to understand the election will be sound. The results will be sound. There'll be a, a peaceful transition uh, to a new presidency. Um, but it's I get I would think it's very tough for them because they actually are being nipped at and sometimes bitten by the other side of this. Yeah, I think that the majority of people that are kind of nipping at specifically Paul Ryan are those hardcore Trump supporters. I think that Paul Ryan still has a majority of support in the Republican uh, Party like base as a whole. I mean, my co-host Ben Shapiro here in L.A., one of my co-hosts was against Paul Ryan being the speaker and advocated for someone from the Freedom Caucus. But he still (laughs) recognizes that Paul Ryan is more conservative and better for the Republican Party on the national scale than Donald Trump ever has been or ever will be. I I feel like Mitch McConnell of those three, I think that you're going to see Paul Ryan be the person that comes out and say, no, this is our process. This is how we have peaceful elections. We're paying attention to this. This isn't going to be an issue. And please move along. But I don't know. After he got kicked last time for disinviting Donald from that event in his home state and, and you know, releasing the statement about the disgusting and vulgar remarks that we all are aware of at this point, I, I don't know that he's going to come out again and do that. But I, I would I would argue that, yes, it is something that needs to happen. And then post the election, it will be interesting to determine what happens to those to those three guys, too. By the way, you can tell Ben that uh, I'm teaching uh, a class on mass media in the presidential election at Trinity College uh, here in the bastion of Connecticut liberalism. And we're studying podcasts this week, and they're all being assigned Ben's podcast. Uh, oh, he'll so, love that. Yeah, I'm sure he will. So, Bilal, Are you also discussing the ADL's list of how he was the most targeted Jewish <laughs> well, Jewish media person? I'll throw it into the mix. Um, yeah. So, Bilal, one of the things that I think everybody knew going into last night was that First of all, the chances for Donald Trump to turn around his trajectory, to use the word everybody seems to be using, were slim. Uh, um, that, you know, he's hit some kind of ceiling around 37, 38 uh, percent that he, he really needed to fundamentally alter the narrative and kind of open up the doors of his campaign to a bunch of people who haven't been supporting him so far. Um, it, it seemed as though... He not only didn't do that, he may have actually sort of shut the doors a little bit more. Right. I think at this point, you know, a question in my mind is what's sort of the end strategy for Donald Trump right now? And I'm I, in my mind, I think he recognizes that this is an uphill battle and he'll probably not win the presidency. In so many ways, I think what he's speaking to is a base that has been energized around his campaign, around the ideas that he puts out there. And I think he's really thinking post-election more than anything else and keeping himself at the center of what him and many around him believe is a genuine movement within the Republican Party. I think there are real problems within the Republican Party, more so than the Democrats at this time, where there's a real split in the base. I think, again, the pushback that I will give to your other other guest is this idea that somehow that uh, this has just come out of the air. And I think this has been brewing for decades now, and this has been a part of the rhetoric and the governing policy of the Republican Party. And in many ways, this is Frankenstein come to life. 
Although you could also argue there is a split in the Democratic Party, too. I mean, neoliberals versus, you know, the Bernie contingent, too. It's not clear that they don't have that same kind of fissure. We're going to take a quick break. We're going to come back with uh, more of both of our guests uh, and more talk about last night's debate after this. Mexico. What I say is what I say. When do we beat Mexico at the border? They are not our friends. Look, from everything I see, has no respect for this person. Well, that's because he'd rather have a puppet as president of the United States. No puppet. It's pretty clear. You're the puppet. It's pretty clear you won't admit that the the Russians have engaged in cyber attacks against the United States of America. All right. Uh, so uh, we're talking about last night's debate with uh, Alicia Krauss, uh, former senior producer for The Sean Hannity Show and currently the morning co-host at KRLAAM 870. The answer in Los Angeles in the studio, Bilal Sekou, uh, associate professor of political science at the University of Hartford. Um, Alicia, uh, we just heard one of the moments where the debate started to maybe dissolve or, or devolve uh, a, a little bit. Although my sense was that Chris Wallace maybe more than any of the other moderators, was able to sort of preserve for a while anyway some kind of structure that, and, and maybe it's it's like an only Nixon can go to China thing, maybe because Chris <laughs> Wallace, because he comes in with the, the Fox News imprimatur. And he's uh, been pretty friendly to Trump in the past, specifically during the Michelle Fields scenario. Yeah. So I, I don't know. I mean, was that your sense, too, that he, he somehow or other, at least for a while until the circus broke out, uh, had the lions and tigers up on their pedestals? Yeah, and I think that he asked tough questions of both of the candidates. And as someone that on the right, I I want to see that. I welcome that. It's just unfortunate that when the tough questions are asked of our candidate this time around, and I say are lightly because I'm hashtag never Trump and never Hillary, uh, it, it was disappointing that he couldn't answer them. I mean, that exchange right there on Russia was just atrocious. And, and I was kind of... It, it, fascinated that Hillary didn't hit him back on some of those things. She kind of wore a poker face in numerous situations last night where she could have hit him back. She could have said, well, you've said you want to be cozy with him. Your daughter is best friends with his girlfriend. You've done business dealings over there, et cetera, et cetera. And then he could have hit her back with, you know, the pay for play that happened at the Clinton Foundation and and making sure that a businessman that's cushy with Putin got extra uranium from the United States. It's just Putin is sitting back and laughing right now because I think whoever wins the election. He he knows that they, he has them in their pocket. I think one of the most disturbing things that happened soon after that, though, was when Trump talked about how he would love to work with Russia to defeat ISIS. I mean, let's not forget that Russia's cozy with Iran and Bashar al-Assad in Syria. You know, um, first of all, I was invited to Putin's debate party last night, but the invitation said we had all, all we had to be all shirtless, and I just didn't want to do that. So um, awkward. Bilal, I think I hear Alicia doing something that I do too, and you may be doing it as well. Which is I, watching that debate last night, I found myself mentally scripting answers for both of these candidates. That in many respects, uh, I thought I do think that Hillary Clinton has some weak spots, some vulnerable spots, which uh, it seemed as though. Trump was too involved in his own inner drama to exploit right. last night. There, there are also times where I wish she would say things a little bit more coherently. Is that where we're turning into, yeah. kind of a nation of backseat drivers? In, in many ways, I think you're absolutely right. I mean, what, what was amazing to me about watching this whole thing, I think, is the missed opportunities. And I think your other guess is right, that there were many missed opportunities. I thought, you know, the, from you know, the start of that debacle in Iraq with the Bush administration to the unraveling of Iraq, the unwrapping, excuse me, of, of uh, Syria and also Libya in the Middle East, the growth of ISIS. I mean, that's a particular vulnerable spot for the Democrats and I think a vulnerable spot for Hillary Clinton and the part she played in any of that. 
unraveling, and yet he could not get over himself to actually be able to really engage that. I, I do wonder about whether he's capable of really talking with any depth about any of those issues and really understand the region and understand the history of it in a way that sort of moves beyond a few kind of platitudes that he normally uses on the campaign trail that really rouse up his base. Um, Alicia, it did seem as though he was talking mostly to his base last night. Um, there mm-hmm. were a lot of things that he could have said, to, at least to attempt to convert people who are on the fence or the people who are less decided or undecided. Um, I don't know. What, what do you wish he would have said? You've actually already mentioned a few things. But even maybe even as a matter of tone or, or invitation to people to consider supporting him, what do you wish he would have said? As much as his RNC speak depressed me because it was Donald Trump up there while I was in the gallery watching with the rest of the media, there were some aspects of that RNC speech that I think were appropriate. And there are some aspects of the theme of the RNC speech that are applicable to mainstream voters, specifically female voters, when it comes to the law and order stuff. And I think his answer on the rigged election and how he was going to leave us in suspense flies in the face of this law and order candidate that he's allegedly supposed to be. And so I think that there could have been a broader appeal and an aspect that that he could have used talking points that talked about how he wants to bring, uh, you know, economic success, uh, you know, back from the the awful 16 years that we've had ec- economically here in the United States. He could have talked about national security in a sense that I think uh, maybe toned down a lot of his rhetoric that we all disagree on, with him on and and made it about the, that kind of law and order. We're all going to have jobs. Your children are going to be well educated. It's going to be OK. But at the same time, I think it's difficult for him to make some of those pivots. I mean, the reality is, is that law and order really is a dog whistle or a cold word for race. When he talks about the need to get into and watch, you know, voting going on in central cities, again, dog whistle, cold word for race. And so at the same time, in terms of broadening his approach and his ability to sort of talk, in a, in a more broad discourse, I think it's just difficult for him to do. I, I'll sort of switch hats and be a panelist for a second uh, and just say that I, places where I would have gone after her last night, and uh, and I'm not a Trump supporter, obviously, um, I thought her answer about the no-fly zone was unsatisfactory. I mean, that's mm-hmm. an area where she really does scare me. And Wallace asked a great question. He said, what happens if you have a no-fly zone and a Russian plane flies into it? Are you going to shoot that plane down? Um, and, and it almost seemed as though she really didn't have an answer to that or hadn't prepared an answer for that. It's very unusual for her not to have prepared an answer for something. And and it is, I mean, for I've kind of enjoyed the no drama Obama uh, approach to this as opposed to what I would see as a significant policy change, Alicia, uh, for Clinton, where I think in some ways she will be more militaristic and may play a game of brinksmanship that is going to make people uncomfortable. I mean, you've seen I I agree with you there. I think that she's going to definitely be more hawkish than Trump is. I mean, I remember when once once again, I'm not that old, but I'm old enough to remember when people in the Republican Party would ostracize people that said Bush lied, people died. And now that guy is our nominee. And uh, so it's it's mind boggling that we're in the year 2016 and there was a debate about who said what and who voted how on the Iraq war. And that the woman that is more hawkish on that is representing the Democratic Party. Now, I think you can look at her failures as secretary of state and the failures of the Obama administration and an area where Democrats are very weak this election cycle with the chaos that has erupted in the Middle East. But, I mean, being a being a daughter of a military veteran and granddaughter of a World War II vet and having an uncle that's in the Navy SEALs, it was deeply concerning to me that Donald Trump was dumb enough to say on international television that the only reason we have troops on the ground in Mosul, Iraq right now is to shore things up to make Hillary Clinton look good so the Obama administration can help win her win the election. That, that was just 
outrageous and over the top. You know, Colin, a moment for me also was when she gave the response about the open borders and she made that comment. And and I just thought the opportunity to really hammer on the Wall Street speeches and other things, which I think works as base, but also potentially a lot of independents who are concerned about the influence of of the wealthy and the well-to-do in, in society. I think he could have played on that because that's been a major theme of his campaign. It, it does seem, Alicia, I mean, one thing that hampers him is, and it would hamper anybody, but it especially hampers him, is to explain some of the stuff that I personally find a little bit alarming about the Clintons. It, it's difficult. I mean, there's mm-hmm. a way in which, you know, if you look at uh, WikiLeaks and some of the reporting that's been done by just sort of conventional reporting sources like uh, Ken Vogel at Politico, who's really kind of looked at sort of their money and how it moves around or how money moves around in Clinton world. There's a way in which there are these this, this a small group of people who are kind of farming this fertile crescent that sits uh, kind of between the White House and the State Department and the Clinton Global Initiative um, and some private sector companies that maybe have been formed by Clinton associates. You know, And money moves around and people get paid lots of different ways uh, and some of the money winds up going to Bill Clinton in the form of big fees. But to explain that, it's like trying to do play-by-play when a bunch of octopuses are playing volleyball. There's just a lot yeah. of things waving around there. I mean, you'd have to be really, really good at boiling something down in a concise way. And he's and, specifically and he not at that. And in, in, in addition to that, some of the ways that he hit her, and I think we know this because we're on radio every single day, that you have to reset and refocus things. And you have to repeat things as well in order for the audience to kind of get it because we're going about our daily lives. People are listening in the car. You know, they're making dinner while they're watching the debate or they just put the kids to bed. And so there's an element of he doesn't even understand that he has to explain in, in a in a sound bite, an elevator, you know, clip or speech, for example, what he's actually talking about. And so he assumes that when he brings up certain things, that Hillary Clinton has done at the foundation or that she did as secretary of state or even Bill Clinton, you know, attacks that he's made against Bill in the past. A lot of voters don't have any idea what you're talking about. And and I think that in a way she does a little bit better job of setting those. But there are a couple of examples last night when she did that, that it, it seemed like her answers were very long winded and very scripted. And I think you have a perfect example of Trump's lack of preparedness and then her over preparedness and how that negatively affected both of their performances. Yeah, uh, we have to go to a break here pretty soon, Bilal. But just quick th- thing, you know, you used the term dog whistle before. Dog whistles only work when dogs are listening, right? The Absolutely. people who aren't dogs, you can't blow that whistle and, right. and assume everybody's going to get what you're talking about in right. the way that Alicia yeah. said. But if there's anything about this campaign and what it has brought out is that there are more people out there who really do hear the dog whistle. And so I think this campaign has clearly shown that when he gets up and he launches it talking about Mexicans being rapists and criminals and, and coming across our border and raping and murdering and killing people, the stuff, you know, I've, I've grown increasingly annoyed with the reference to the African-Americans and the Latinos. The blacks. Exactly. The and this just sort of goes on and on and on, and I think it's problematic. But I think when he talks about things like, you know, the inner cities and the problems that they're like the cesspools of crime and violence, and I mean, that's sort of playing into pers- Perceptions that people have about central cities and the people who live in them. And those are the dog whistles that he blows. And I think people do, in fact, hear those. All right. We have to take a break here. We, we want everybody, the blacks, the whites, the Muslims, the Mexicans, we want everybody to support public radio. <laughs> I think I probably just screwed up our fun drive. By saying that. It was a joke. All right. So, no, we do want everybody. If you love this show, if you love what we're doing right now, if you value it, it's a great time to make a donation. So nice people are going to come on and just for a couple seconds. They're going to talk to you about how you do support a show like this one. So if you would pledge during our show, that'd be really nice. I was involved in taking out Bin Laden with Secretary of State.
You know, I went to all the after parties in Vegas and I never ran into Malik Obama. Today's show was produced by Betsy Kaplan and me, Kyone Wolf, with help from Josh Nalea and Jonathan McPants. Greg Hill appeared in the intro, and our interns are Rusty Fisher and his sister, Nasty Fisher. The part of Bill Curry was played by Mark Cuban. Never miss an episode. Subscribe to us on iTunes, Stitcher, or TuneIn. Anything you miss can be found at WNPR.org slash Colin. On tomorrow's show, The Nose watches some short films. And now, back to Colin. All right, we have uh, one segment to go here. Uh, and uh, joining me in studio uh, is Bilal Siku, uh, Associate Professor of Political Science at the University of Hartford. Joining me from the studios of KRLA AM 870, the answer in Los Angeles is Alicia Krauss, former senior producer for the Sean Hannity Show and currently the morning co-host on that station. So I want to talk a little bit about um, how this is playing with younger voters. Uh, and um, I'm going to start with you, Bilal, because I mean, you've watched all three debates with millennials, basically, uh, college-age millennials mostly, I assume? Right. Yeah. yeah. I mean, two of the three debates, yeah. Yeah. So uh, how 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 are they rea- are they reacting in a way that's any different from the mass audience? I think what's been astonishing to me about uh, millennials this time around is the level of interest they have actually in this campaign. You know, they get a re- bad reputation for not being interested about politics, not caring much about it. And yet we've had phenomenal turnout at both of these events, and students have been quite attentive. They've stayed to the very end. Um, you can read their body language and their huffs and puffs that, you know, they're really listening to the candidates very closely, and so they are paying attention. But I will say, you know, this thing has been really disappointing in some ways. They've been looking for more detailed discussion about, you know, the issues of college affordability, uh, dealing with student loan debt, things about climate change and the environment. They've also been wondering about, you know, jobs for folks like them who are coming out into the workforce in a year or two or more, a few more years after that. And so in that sense, there's been a great disappointment that the candidates have not really uh, s- talked about those issues. It hasn't been the real focus of these debates at all. Alicia, I think you said earlier, uh, you're 30. You probably have been, uh, for a lot of your life, the politics and pu- public policy nerd uh, <laughs> standing, standing in the corner of the party. But I mean, I'm sure one thing that you've said to other members of your generation is, no, this stuff is relevant. It is meaningful. You should care about it. Um, and I, I don't know. I mean, uh, what do you think about what Bilal just said? Is there is, is this campaign kind of lacking the kind of stuff that would be tangibly and substantively meaningful to people from your generation? Yeah, I, I think, and unfortunately, ma- the majority of my generation was enamored with the Bernie Sanders, and and I have friends that you know have suffered under communism and socialism, and you know which communism is just socialism in practice for those of your listeners who don't know that, and it, and it kind of disturbs me that a majority of those people we saw a poll earlier this week think that George W. Bush is responsible for more deaths than Stalin is, and I think that that speaks to problem within the American education system, not teaching accurate history. But I, I think that I think Bilal was right that, that there is a level of interest, but there's also a level of distrust from where these millennials are, are getting their information. The majority of millennials don't trust any form of media, which I think is a pro and a con. And I said this on a panel last week that I think the con of that is it tends to be kind of like level borderline conspiracy theory, uh, whether that's on the far right or the far left. And But I think that the pro is that hopefully then those people in my generation those college students, I consider myself a grandma millennial because I'm 30. I, I'm on the you know older end. But I, I think that it, I would hope that that would encourage them to go out and do their research, to read both the Huffington Post and the Daily Wire, to watch CNN and Fox News, to you know read blogs on both sides of the issues and, and kind of see where all of the crazy can intertwine and come up with their own positions. Right. 
But I tell you what's been interesting to me in talking to the students is this recognition that, you know, plutocracy and oligarchy is real in this country and that, you know, income inequality is real and that wealth and privilege um, is real and that capitalism has failed uh, many people in this country except for the extremely wealthy. And so in that sense, I think a lot of them are also starting from that base as a way of sort of looking at it. Now, ultimately, what the solutions are to fix these problems, they certainly disagree about, but there's a recognition that the status quo is simply not working and that it works to the advantage of a few who are quite privileged in this society, and they would like to see that changed. I'd also just like to stand up for the idea you can do socialism without communism. They do it right. They do it in Western Europe all over the place. And I'm a socialist myself, so I think you're right. You <laughs> um, so uh, I want to add one more voice to the conversation. It's the very funny writer uh, Alexandra Petri from The Washington Post. Uh, she, uh, as she sort of watched the debate last night and blogged the debate last night, uh, was also kind of reconstructing it uh, in her own words. Uh, so here's how she sums up uh, the uh, concluding remarks. Clinton, my father was a small businessman with a squeegee and a dream. From him, I took a natural human-like cadence and in the ambition to make a difference in the world. Please, America, I beg you, you can end this. Vote for me and you'll never have to hear Donald Trump's opinions on a national stage again. Trump, such a nasty woman. Clinton, I rest my case. Um, Alexandra, I did note in your blogging last night and your writing today uh, a sense of exhaustion that uh, for uh, you're also a a young person who might have found all the spectacle kind of exciting early on. Uh, There's a sense now I think a lot of people want this to be over. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's been sort of like the fact that we had to watch 943 debates I thought was excessive. <laughs> uh, it's actually only about 937, but but they seem that, that way. So uh, you're obviously somebody who works on this as a humorist. Um, was last night's debate essentially humorous for you or was it painful? And if so, what was painful? I think at this point, because if this debate had sort of happened out of the blue in like the year 2012, everyone would have been shocked and stunned and run, to, run around and say, and been also confused about why those were the two candidates on the stage instead of the appropriate 2012 candidates. But I think at this point, it's like the old thing about the frog who it's comfortable, it's comfortable, and then one day it looks around and it's become an alt-right meme. Uh, <laughs> instead of boiling, I guess that's today's version of the frog. Like, I don't even know what's normal anymore after staring into this abyss for the past 15 months. <laughs> Wow, this is a cheerful conversation. Well, no, I think it's a good question. And, and Alicia, I, I think we all kind of share that sense that this, you know, I, I was saying before that, you know, you're young, you're, you've probably been uh, trying to introduce your friends to politics. Uh, and then there's this election, which really doesn't resemble any reality that I've ever lived through. And I, I think, although I know she's mainly being funny, Alexander is making a pretty good point, which is we're going to have to locate something that resembles the old normal starting in mid-November. Yeah, I, and I don't even know. I think that some people on the left and the right this election cycle would say that you have been led to these two awful, horrific candidates because the old normal wasn't working properly or people were so upset that they wanted to disrupt it on both sides. And and so I think it's going to be interesting moving forward to, to determine what our new normal is. But I really think this is, I mean, Trump is a reality TV star and Hillary Clinton has been at the forefront of American politics for 30 years and her name recognition has been around for more than 20. So I think it speaks to... To, uh, like the general electorate being like, oh, wait, whose name do I know? And then they decide on that person. 
Well, yeah. In this case, it would be both names, though. But yeah, go, what were you going to yeah, say? Yeah, I mean, it, for, I think for the first time, sorry, but but for the first time in since the history of the United States, that both candidates have one hundred percent name recognition. Right. And in many ways, I think it'll be refreshing that you know the next time around. Uh, my hope is that we will uh, have uh, done away with this baby boom generation and some of the challenges that they have presented to us as a country, and that a new generation of folks will come along, either Gen X, Gen Y, or you know, some of these millennials in a few years after that. And so I think this is, uh, but it's an interesting turn because you're absolutely right. Um, this has been nothing like anything I've seen in my, you know, lifetime. And I think uh, this is going to be a pivotal moment, I think, in our electoral politics. Well, Alexandra, meanwhile, I mean, I think for people like you and me, I was live blogging the debate last night too. And after a while, it's almost like having a little um, cottage by the ocean. I mean, you get kind of lulled by the by the sound of the waves. And every once in a while, something will make you snap to attention. Sometimes it's because every time Trump says that ICE endorses him, I always think he's talking about vanilla ICE. I have to think of a second. Oh, no, that's not what ICE means in this context. But I really, last night... Demographically you know, correct, though. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think vanilla ICE does endorse him, but that's not what he's actually referring to. Um, um, but last night, I mean, I really uh, thought I'd sort of been lulled into the kind of rhythm of this thing. And then when he said such a nasty woman, <laughs> I actually typed into Twitter. Did he just say that? Uh, what was your reaction? No, exactly. It was one of those moments where you think, well, this has been the subtext all along. But now he's just gone and leaned into the microphone and said it just out there. And I think the good thing is that. You know, if you sort of had any doubt at the beginning of the debate and you were willing to accept his assertion that nobody was more respectful of women than he was, he sort of contradicted it in the space of an hour and a half. And people are taking it back, which I know I want my T-shirt. It's like I want to go to a nasty women and bad hombres party on like November 9th. And I think one of my friends is joking on Twitter. Um, yeah, we haven't even mentioned bad hombres today, right. and people on Twitter were, were clamoring for that one. Oh, you know, and, but I mean, Alicia, one thing that I did notice, I mean, obviously we've all watched certain clips from this debate over and over again, that, you know, when he says that thing about such a nasty woman, the, initially I wasn't really paying that much attention. I thought he just sort of said it out of the corner of his mouth or something or mm-hmm. as a kind of a side. He actually kind of stoops down a little bit so he's his mouth is level with the microphone right. and he says i mean he really for some reason or other wanted to say that and it, it's it's got to be because that's who he is it's yeah. the showman of it's the exact same rhetoric that he uses at, at his rallies where you know when he wants the media to pick up something he does that yeah. lean in real close and he changes his tone and he's like pay attention to this and it's and it's really i think his narcissism coming through where he's like hey i just came up with something and you can tell like by his eyes that he's processing whether or not he should say it and then he's like screw it let's just do it and i don't think that it's an attack that that should be made by by a politician i don't think that that name calling is necessary i think that there's plenty of from hillary's 30 years of of horrific involvement in politics that he could have pulled from but let's not forget that democrats have done the same thing barack obama back in 2008 president obama called hillary clinton a liar and a dirty trickster during some of their dnc debates but he also said she was likable enough all right, Bilal, you got to go. You make, gotta you gotta go make teach. Work. All right, you got to go teach. So I also want to just talk about, the, you know, for a long time there's been this notion bandied about, uh, Alexandra and Alicia, that, um, you know, that, that he had a different end game. that, in fact, if his ceiling really was 37, that he would— uh, Watch your step there. Uh, I was worried people are going to fall out of our studio. That that you know that he maybe had some kind of plan to do a television channel. And last night there was something that went up on Facebook Live. <laughs> um, uh, Alicia, I hear you chuckling, so I'll let mm-hmm. you start here. But I mean, it kind of looked like maybe that was this thing. 
Oh, it totally was. And and I hate to tell my brother from another mother, Ben Shapiro, that he's right, but he was totally right. He's been saying this for months, especially since Bannon came on board, you know, previous boss of, of Ben's at, at Breitbart before Ben left Breitbart back after the Michelle Fields incident in the spring. And and this has been Bannon's, I think, role all along is to feed into the crazy, to feed into the alt-right kind of hard right crazy Breitbart style commentators because listen if, if he can get 10 percent of the 17 million Republicans that voted for him in the primary to subscribe to a network or to subscribe to a podcast or to watch the Facebook live feed I mean this was kind of the 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 business idea of Glenn Beck over at the blaze was people will subscribe and then you have enough subscribers so you don't have to worry about advertisers and you can make a a, a few million bucks a month and, and then with the the Facebook live thing last night like it actually said Trump TV and we've heard that Ivanka and Jared Kushner going around talking to attorneys and agents about negotiating a deal for Trump TV. It's going to happen. I don't even think he's trying to win at this point. He's just trying to shore up his subscription audience. And so, Alexander, that makes uh, some of these moments, like when he does squat down and say the nasty woman thing into the microphone, or even when he says, I'll keep you in suspense. uh, You know, I mean, there are more politically effective and efficacious things to say, but maybe he's just kind of trolling us for the purpose of, uh, of juicing up this new media enterprise. No, I think that's right. I think I want politics to be kind of boring. It's like, why now trying to introduce my friends to it? I'm like, no, don't look at politics now. Like, let politics clean up and like come back in four years and we'll have something to show you. But I think Donald Trump is doing a remarkable job, sort of like a in a J.K. Rowling-esque way of creating this fantasy world where it's going to be exciting to live and you sort of tune in next week and he's going to keep us in suspense and we can then go on to Trump TV and enjoy life in this magical shire without any intervening facts getting between us and the message. So that's going to be a fun world to live in, I guess. Alicia, I'm, I'm gathering you're not putting your resume in for this new media enterprise? Oh, heck no. But I can think of some people on some uh, television network networks uh, that will probably be following him. All right. We're going to have to stop uh, there. Uh, I will say that, first of all, uh, in a petri, Petri-like uh, irony, I did note that the Designated Survivor, uh, which is the uh, new uh, uh, Kiefer Sutherland series about like the last remaining person who could possibly be president, uh, that had to be preempted last night <laughs> for the debate, which struck me as a kind of a rich irony somehow. I just hope Kiefer Sutherland is still somewhere. We may need him sooner than we think. Uh, thanks very much to Alicia Krauss uh, and to Alexandra Petri and to Bilal Siku. And thank you to Betsy uh, Kaplan and my entire staff Actually, everybody uh, ran around making sure this thing came together. Thanks to Kion Wolf for being on the board and Josh Nalea for rounding up clips and Jonathan McNichol. We'll be back tomorrow with the nose, which we're just beginning to figure out. In business pleasure or with our wives, it's going to be tough on us little guys to have to play them dirty politics. Politics, oh, politics. You got to know just how to vote. Kiss that baby, shine that shoe, if you know what's good for you, you've got to play them politics. I'm hearing all this noise about Hillary's pantsuit at last night's debate, like she's this ruthless intergalactic leader from the future. Well, yeah, dress for the job you want. <laughs>